Today on Let the Bible Speak. God desires for His people to worship, but is He concerned with how we worship Him? And welcome to Let the Bible Speak. I'm happy to be with you and thankful you've joined me to study the Bible. We're amid a series of lessons entitled, Does It Make Any Difference? From beliefs about doctrine and practice to the church we assemble with, many modern people have concluded that it doesn't make any difference in the eyes of God as long as we are well, sincere. Such things are mere technicalities and formalities, and God is unconcerned about what a church believes and practices. Well, this philosophy has been dominant for many years now and has gone to seed, so to speak, until relatively few people have deep convictions about what the Bible teaches about much of anything. As a result, anything goes. And even if change initially meets some resistance, just give it a little time and convictions will be whittled away and eventually replaced by preferences and we will finally become so used to the change until we no longer even think about it. This is not only true regarding moral convictions and doctrinal convictions, but how the church worships and functions as well. We want to talk about worship for a little while today. Dozens, if not even hundreds of churches in your own community will meet today or this week and worship together. Will God approve and receive all of it, regardless of what kind of worship it is? There is no doubt that God requires that our worship come from a pure and devoted heart, but does that include worshiping God in a certain way? Long ago, a woman had a question for Jesus concerning worship. She was a Samaritan woman who had gone to the well to draw water and providentially encountered Jesus there. Their conversation is recorded in John chapter 4, and I want us to listen to uh, the part of it described beginning in verse 20. She said to the Lord, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This woman and her fellow Samaritans were misguided about worship. This was largely because they rejected a large portion of the Old Testament scriptures and did not therefore know all of the will of God about the matter. We want to be sure we're not mistaken about worship either because worship is a central part of man's relationship with God, not only as individuals, but as members of Christ's church. Stay with me for our study today. Does it make any difference how I worship? After a song.
Disagreements about worship are nothing new. The people of God have historically viewed worship as being so high and sacred that it sometimes generated great controversy. Now contrast that with our day when many seem indifferent about worship. They believe that one can approach God in just about whatever way that pleases them instead of seeking to know what God desires from the worshiper. In Bible times, it was different. People rightly considered the worship of God as holy ground. There were not only questions concerning how to worship and when to worship, but even where to worship. This was the case with the long-standing feud between the Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans were rejected by the Jews. They were viewed with contempt and disdain because of their heritage and their beliefs. The Samaritans were considered a mongrel breed between the Jews of the northern kingdom and the Assyrians who had long ago invaded Israel. In Jesus' time on earth, the differences between them were stark. For, for one thing, the Samaritans did not accept all of the Old Testament scriptures. They claimed to follow the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses, but they rejected the other books, including the historical books and the prophets. Well, that left the Samaritans without a great deal of vital information, ignorant of much of God's system and dealings with His people. And the result was the religion and worship of the Samaritans was impure, and it was unscriptural. They believed that Moses in the book of Deuteronomy made Mount Gerizim in Samaria the exclusive place of worship since Jerusalem was never mentioned at that time. Well, since they were missing a substantial part of God's revelation, they failed to see that God had established His presence instead in the city of Jerusalem and that the temple there was the appointed place of worship. So the Samaritans believed in worshiping on Mount Gerizim, where they had had a temple until about a hundred years before this conversation took place. It had been destroyed. While the Jews rightly believed that Jerusalem was the holy place and the right place to worship. And that, I suppose that was the main theological division between the Jews and Samaritans. Well, Jesus, being a Jew, usually avoided Samaria, but on the occasion recorded in John chapter 4, he made an exception and he purposefully went there. He stopped at Jacob's well to rest while his disciples went on to find food. And while he was there, you recall a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and that historic and beautiful conversation took place. When she realized that Jesus was a prophet, she began to ask him religious questions. And that's what people often do when they're with a preacher, and so it was with this woman and with Jesus. Her question had to do with worship. Perhaps Jesus could once and for all settle this long-running debate, just what is the right place to worship God? Well, look, beginning in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place for, or where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now here Jesus took a side in this religious controversy, and that ought to tell us, by the way, that the Lord is not indifferent about doctrinal issues and debates, as some people try to portray Him as being. They believe Jesus was just ecumenical, and let's just get everybody together regardless of what they believe and how they live, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus plainly tells her, you Samaritans are wrong about this matter, and your worship is wrong. The Jews are correct. Salvation, He says, is of the Jews. They are, in other words, the Jews, the ones that God continued His work through, and not the Samaritans whose religion and worship was misguided, corrupted, and incomplete. But then Jesus uses this conversation, her question, His answer, 
to point to the new dispensation that was dawning in which all peoples of the earth would be united in Him. And he says in verses 23 and 24 that the geographical location of worship was about to become irrelevant as the kingdom of God arrived and eventually swept over the earth. And he states that going forward there were only two requirements for worship. He says, but the hour is coming and now is. The time is imminent. The time has arrived, he, he is telling her, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Notice that Jesus says there are two qualities necessary for worship that God will accept. That it be number one in spirit and number two in truth. The Lord did not say that worshipers ought to worship in spirit and in truth, but rather we must worship God in spirit and truth. Now no matter where worship takes place, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Asia, in Europe, in Africa, in America, no matter what time, what time period it takes place, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, today or tomorrow, what God demands is that worship be offered to Him in spirit and truth. Now to serve the Lord in spirit means that we serve Him with our inner being. Worship is not some rote mechanical ritual that one can offer to God without involving the heart and mind. We don't merely do things as an offering to God, but true worship demands the full engagement and devotion of the inner person. Worship is to come from a pure and a sincere heart. It is to emanate from a mind that is set upon adoring and glorifying God. It is to be the product of a heart that is in fellowship with God and in tune with God, seeking to be in tune with God. If we sing to God in worship, we need to understand and mean the words we sing. Paul said, I will pray with the Spirit, referring to the human spirit or the inner man here, not the Holy Spirit. And I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. In other words, it wouldn't just be words he was singing. He would understand the words, and those words would come from his heart and from his inner man. Paul also told the Romans in Romans 1, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. True service to God of any kind, whether it be corporate worship with the body of Christ or the things that I daily do as an individual to serve and obey the Lord, they must come from a sincere and an earnest heart if God is to recognize and if God is to honor it. But friend, contrary to what the majority of folks say today, true worship requires more than just a sincere heart and a pure motive. People say God doesn't care how we worship as long as we mean it, as long as we're sincere. But that is not true. In fact, that has never been true, and it is not true today. Jesus said that we must worship God not only in spirit but also in truth. What is truth? How can we know anything about truth? How can we do anything in truth? Well, truth is what God has revealed. Truth is what is revealed in the Word of God. Jesus prayed in John 17 verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And so to worship God in truth is to worship God according to what He has revealed in His Word. So first, it matters how we worship God because God requires that worship to Him be offered in spirit and truth. But second, it matters how we worship because He is the one receiving our worship. God is the object of worship and not the worshiper. And let us never forget that. Worship is not a matter of personal taste or style. It is not a matter of personal preference or family or ethnic tradition. 
True worship consists of what God desires from us, not what we desire from Him. The very word worship means to kiss the hand of, or to do homage or make obeisance to someone. It means to make homage to one of higher rank, and it thus implies approaching the one worship with reverence and with humility, with a sense of inferiority. You know, that makes it easy to see what Jesus was requiring there in John 4 verse 23 when He said we must worship God in spirit and in truth. It's very presumptuous to think that we can just worship God however we want to. Does it not show great irreverence and hubris on its very face to suggest that we can enter the presence of God, saunter into the presence of God, and try to give Him whatever kind of worship we desire and design and whatever we find pleasing and suitable instead of what He finds pleasing. Yes, my friend, God is seeking worship from sincere hearts. Make no mistake about that. But at the same time, He demands worship that is according to His directives and His revealed Word. Worship is not a show or performance. It is not about a hair-raising, emotion-generating experience. Worship is intentionally and sincerely and purposefully rendering obedience to God above. You know, sometimes people say, well, I just don't like the way we worship because I don't get much out of it. And usually what that means is I'm not emotionally excited. Many people, when they say that, I fear they mean this does not appeal to my carnal appetites. Well, friend, you're not the one, and I'm not the one who's receiving the worship. Yes, God has designed worship so that we are benefited, so that we are spiritually enriched by offering worship to Him, but that's the byproduct of worship, not the object of worship. The aim of worship is not exciting your emotions, but is bringing honor to God. And bringing honor to God and pleasing God should therefore make us very happy, at peace, draw us closer to Him. But not because the aesthetics of worship get us all excited. Worship is not a rock concert. Worship is not a light show. Worship is not about stimulating cheers and applause and showcasing people's talent. It is a reverent and humble offering of our obedience and service to God. That's what it was historically until modern times. And you know, if our worship is not centered upon pleasing honoring and glorifying God, then our worship is misguided, misplaced, and it is not accepted by Him. True worship consists of doing what God asks us to do in the way He asks us to do it, and with a pure and worshipful heart. And if your worship is designed to draw and please the crowds, it's not true worship. If your worship is designed to please you, it's not true worship. If your worship is judged by an emotion meter, you have the wrong idea about worship. Now, if worship comes from a pure heart, emotion will take care of itself. True worship from a true worshiper is joyful, fulfilling, uplifting, and all of that. But it first is on God's terms, if it is worth anything. Now, I want to ask today, do you have scriptural authority for how you worship God? I believe that's a very important question. Does the New Testament authorize and teach the things that you will do when you come together with the church today or whenever you meet with the church? I don't think that should be dismissed. Or are things in your worship different than what the New Testament teaches? Do you even do things that the New Testament explicitly forbids? Carefully read Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, for example, so forth, and seriously and sincerely ask yourself, 
Is our communion table set in the way that Jesus instituted the sacred feast 2,000 years ago, or have we changed it? Read those accounts. Read Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and picture in your mind what Jesus had, what Jesus took, what Jesus did, what Jesus gave, what they did, and say, now is our table set that way? Or does our table look different than that table that Jesus spread before His disciples? Is our assembly ordered in the fashion that Paul said when he corrected the abuses of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, with the church gathered into one place, all being taught by one man at a time, with women not doing the speaking? Most people agree that spirit matters. Why not truth? You see, the Bible describes four kinds of worship, and only one of them is acceptable to God. There's ignorant worship, such as Paul encountered in Athens in Acts chapter 17. The idolaters there had constructed an image dedicated to the true God, but their worship was meaningless because they didn't know the one who they were worshiping. They didn't know anything about Him. They had no relationship with Him. They were going through motions that meant nothing. They were worshiping a God they did not know and had no relationship with. Then second, there is vain worship. Now vain means empty. It means ineffectual, vapid. Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 15 verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, when we're following the doctrines and teachings decreed by men, devised in the councils of men, commanded in the creeds of men, according to the traditions of men, it is vain and empty worship, and God rejects it, no matter how beautiful it may seem to be, no matter how moving, how exciting, how formal, how long it's been around. If it doesn't go back 2,000 years to the apostles in the early church, it's of men and not of God, and it's wrong. It's vain. Number three, there is what the Bible calls will worship, or as the New King James translates it, self-imposed religion in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. The idea here is that which is imposed by the thinking and will of man and not commanded by God. Well, you don't want to be guilty of offering that kind of worship, worship that pleases you. But then there's true worship. And that is worship according to John 4, verses 23 and 24, that is directed to God in spirit and according to His divinely revealed truth. You know, friend, the fact is that God has required that worship be done sincerely and according to His revelation, according to His Word, since the very beginning of time. That's not something just germane to the law of Moses. It goes back to the beginning of time. If you think it makes no difference how you worship God, tell that to Cain. Cain and Abel, the second generation of human beings, brought offerings to the Lord according to Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, and one was accepted, the other rejected. You recall the story? Why is that? Well, Cain brought an offering of his fruits and vegetables to the Lord, and Abel brought a blood sacrifice from his flocks. Say, well, what difference did that make? Maybe it was the best that both men could bring. Maybe it was. But God didn't accept Cain's. Why? Was it merely because of his attitude? Well, the Bible says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. God had made it known that such a sacrifice was to be of a flesh and blood nature at some point. And I believe it was perhaps when the sin of Adam and Eve was atoned for in the garden that God established the precedent there. But nonetheless, at some point, God had made it known because the Hebrew writer says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead still speaks. Hebrews 11 verse 4. What does it mean that he did it by faith? Well, that doesn't mean he felt good about it or something like that. Faith is trusting and acting on what God has said. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, said Paul in Romans 10 verse 17. Abel followed God's instruction. He brought his offering by faith. Cain, on the other hand, ignored God and did what he wanted to do instead. And there were serious consequences for his flagrant actions. Even more pronounced and immediate were the consequences suffered by two priests in Leviticus 10 named Nadab and Abihu. The name Nadab interestingly means liberal, by the way. These two sons of Aaron burned incense before the Lord, but they didn't go about it in the right way. God was so very particular, He decreed that the fire in their censers come from live coals beneath the altar. Instead, the Bible says this pair used strange fire. I don't know where they got it, what it consisted of, but the Bible says it was strange fire. It was foreign to God's arrangement. And they brought it before the Lord, and the record says the fire leapt out and devoured them. They died before the Lord. It is a serious thing to worship God, and I don't recommend playing with fire. You know, when uh, Moses was commanded to build the tabernacle, God was very specific about how that place of worship was to be constructed. Read the instructions for the tabernacle and how minute a particular God was about it. And the Hebrew writer points to that. And he speaks of how Moses was commanded to make all things according to the pattern. God has patterns. He teaches by patterns. He establishes patterns. He expects us to follow patterns. The fact that we live in the New Testament doesn't mean that God himself has changed and that we can, as it were now, just saunter into the presence of the Lord and bring whatever we want to and worship in whatever way we like. Paul said to the Corinthians, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Do what I've written for you to do in the way I have written for you to do it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't rearrange it. He commended them for wanting to do what he told them to do in the way he told them to do it. Friend, it matters how we worship God. It always has mattered. And it still does. For God is the object of our worship. And even today, in fact, especially today, God seeks those who will come into his presence with a sincere heart and offer to him the worship he has prescribed, to worship him in spirit and in truth. It makes a difference. And I hope you'll examine your worship today in light of what the New Testament teaches.
Subscribe to our YouTube channel to see all of our past broadcasts plus extra videos including Let the Bible Speak classics all the way back to the 1960s. And get new updates, go to YouTube and search for Let the Bible Speak TV and click on subscribe. Our time has come and gone again for this week. If you would like to have a copy of today's lesson, we would love to hear from you. Ask for the lesson, Does It Make Any Difference How I Worship? Does it make any difference how I worship? If you'll ask for it by that title, we'll get your free transcript on, our, on its way as soon as we can. We'd love to hear from you, no matter where you may be from, around the world, where you're watching. In particular, this week, we'd love to hear from our viewers in the Jackson, Mississippi market. If you're watching in southern Mississippi, why don't you drop us a line, get in touch with us, give us a call or text us. Let us know that you watch the program and let us know uh, that the program is of some benefit to you. We would be glad to hear from you. And I promise we were not, we're not going to ask you for any money or ever, ever solicit any kind of money or donation from you. We just simply want to hear from you and know that you're watching. And we, of course, invite you to come and worship with us anytime that you have the opportunity. We're so glad you've been with us today. Make your plans if God is willing to join me next week for another Bible study. Until then, have a great week. God bless you. Let the Bible Speak is brought to you by The Church of Christ. For more information, including our past broadcast and sermon transcripts, visit ltbstv.org. Thanks for being with us today. Join us next time for Let the Bible Speak.